And as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 10. We are finishing off Romans chapter 10 this morning. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we left off at verse 13. And so we're going to just pick up at verse 14 and, and move through to the end of the chapter here. But a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at that section in Romans chapter 10, we asked this question about the text and kind of flowing out of the text. What does the gospel do? Or how does the gospel work? It's kind of what we were looking at, and that's exactly what Paul was laying out for us through that text. And what we saw is that the gospel, it works like this. It it confronts us first. It stops us dead in our tracks, and it addresses our fundamental problem, our sin problem, and our tendency to be self-righteous, to think that somehow we can be made right with God through our own efforts, through our own ability to obey His Word, that somehow we can establish a good standing with God, and it confronts that head-on, and secondly, the gospel corrects that. It corrects that misunderstanding, and it shows us that we cannot perfectly obey the law of God. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be righteous enough. We cannot earn our own righteousness before God. And it shows us then why we need this. The gospel converts us. It actually has to supernaturally transform us from the inside out. It has to take people who are spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. It has to take out the heart of stone that is cold towards the things of God, that loves sin and has no affection for God. And it has to replace that cold, dead heart of stone with a brand new heart of flesh that is filled with the Spirit of God. New desires, new affections. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel works. And Paul has been laying out this gospel from the very beginning of this letter. He tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And it's precisely this question of how the gospel works in relation to the Jew and the Gentile that Paul is addressing in Romans 9 through 11. And we know that the gospel works. We know it is the power of God unto salvation. We know it is for all who believe. But I want to ask a question that then flows out of this. How will the gospel work? You follow me? Not how does the gospel work, but how how will the gospel work? Let me give you an example. I presume, you're here this morning, I presume you have a car that works. I hope so. Or, or you've got, let's say, a vacuum cleaner, right, that works. It, it cleans your, your carpets. But, but here's the reality. It doesn't work by itself. It's not automatic. It doesn't just kind of mysteriously turn on and get you from place A to place B. It doesn't mysteriously just clean your carpets. You're like, Ian, I have a Roomba. I don't care. You still had to do something to get that thing set up. You had to get up, you had to get in your car, you had to put the key in or push the button, you had to step on the gas, you had to flick a switch, you had to move the vacuum over the floor. The point I know, it's so simple, isn't it? 
There is something you must do to get those things to work, to do what they're supposed to do. And the same is actually true when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we say the gospel works, we must understand that we actually play a part in how God has designed the gospel to work in people's lives. So while Paul has spent a lot of time in Romans 9 in particular emphasizing the sovereignty of God, and he has, he's made it abundantly clear that God is sovereign over salvation, what we need to see is that in Romans 10, he is focusing almost solely on human responsibility in salvation. And we must have a view of God's sovereignty that accurately understands and portrays what the Bible says about human responsibility. So what we see in this chapter, in chapter 10, is that while the gospel confronts, while the gospel corrects, and while the gospel converts, I want you to notice this from this text this morning, the gospel also calls. It calls us as human beings to do something. Here's what Paul says, let's read from verse 14 to 21. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry." Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Here we see both the emphasis on evangelism and on the responsibility of man. And I want to show you from this text that the gospel calls first, listen, the church to participate. The gospel calls the church to participate. The people of God are called to play an active role in how God is saving people. Now, really quickly, just look back at verse 13. This is where we, led, we left off in the previous time in this passage. The reminder here is that for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We talked about that when we looked at that passage, that, that there's a universal nature to salvation. It is available to all. Anybody, anytime, anywhere can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But that then forces this question or this series of questions that Paul begins in verse 14. And this logical chain is incredibly helpful to understand. How then will they call on him whom they have never heard? I mean, or whom, excuse me, have, have not believed? 
Right? How, how are people supposed to be saved? That's the question that he's, he's asking and answering. How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? It's just very, very simple, very, very logical, and I actually think it makes the most sense to kind of look at this in reverse order so we get ourselves kind of around, get our arms around what exactly God is calling us to do. Now, the immediate context reminds us that Paul is dealing with the Jewish people. Remember that. And the questions that are coming up are are simply this. Why is it that if Jesus is truly the promised Messiah, and if He is a Jewish Messiah, He is Jewish by blood, why is it that so many Jews in Paul's day did not believe? Remember, he's looking around at the church, and people are wondering the same thing. What happened to the Jews? Why aren't they embracing Jesus Christ? And look at all these Gentiles in the church. Like, this is not the way we, we thought it was supposed to be. And what he wants to show them and show us is that Israel, and by extension, everyone else in all the world, is accountable and responsible for what they do with the gospel message. Everybody who hears is accountable and responsible. So, so let's just look at these these terms in reverse, what we actually have here is basically an evangelism 101 class that Paul is giving us. It's so basic and it's so clear. People are saved. I'm going to focus on the two primary things that the church is called to do. People are saved because first, we are sent. We are sent. This is the first thing that happens. There is a sending when it comes to evangelism or a going. People must go. This is right in the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, be going, constantly be going to make disciples. And the term that he uses here is an interesting one. How are they to preach unless they are sent? The word sent there is the Greek word apostello, which is where we get the word apostle from. And certainly this is, this is referencing the capital A apostles, you know, the ones who are commissioned specifically by Jesus to go out with the gospel, the ones who are responsible for writing or transmitting the vast majority of the New Testament scriptures to us. They are the ones who are the foundation of the church according to Ephesians chapter 2. But there's also a, a sense there is a lowercase a apostles. In other words, there are people who are sent ones who are sent by Jesus, not just in an official capacity or with a delegated specific role, but in a general sense. And the church embodies this general sense. It's an extension of the apostolic ministry, the church carrying forward the gospel message. Yes, certain individuals called to fulfill a specific role in that, but everybody called collectively together to fulfill the Great Commission. And this idea of sent, it really has to do with two things, identity and activity. Identity and activity. You see, when we think of identity, we often describe things about ourselves. If you were to tell me about your identity, maybe you tell me about some of your characteristics, your physical features. Maybe you tell me about your career. Uh, maybe that you're married and you have kids, you know, so you're a husband or a father. 
And those are all true things when it comes to your identity, but when it comes to understanding the primary aspects of your identity, we need to look to the Scriptures. And when Jesus, interestingly, when He talks about His identity, when He describes Himself over and over through the Scriptures, when He explains Himself to people, amongst uh, many things He says, listen to what He says, He says that He is sent by the Father. He is sent into this world. For this reason, He says, I have come. And this idea of being sent or sentness, it actually encapsulates his entire life, his entire ministry, his entire mission, and in the same way as those who are in Christ, it is supposed to shape our identity. It is supposed to be the dominating feature in our life, in our ministry, and in our mission. Jesus said this, he said, as the Father sent me, so now I send you, as he commissions his disciples. John's gospel was filled with this kind of language. And then when we we look at the book of Acts, what we see is that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Remember that? that They're waiting, all the the disciples, all the Christians are waiting in a room and they're praying, but before they can go out on mission, they need to get together and they need to wait patiently for God to send the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what happens on that Pentecost day. The Spirit of God comes down, fills the believers, and then they are sent out to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Sumeria, listen, and here's the point of the book of Acts, and to the ends of the earth. Spirit of God equips the people of God for the mission of God. We're sent out by Jesus with His Holy Spirit. We're given everything we need for the mission. We are sent into this world to embody the presence of Jesus, to display Jesus through what we say and what we do. And to do this, He's given us a new heart with new desires and new power. That conversion experience, you see, has is, is got this built-in sense of being sent. And isn't it true, don't you find that, especially with new believers? Some of us, we've, we've been saved a long time, and, and kind of the gospel can sometimes um, grow a little bit cold in our hearts. But do you ever watch a new believer somebody who is maybe radically saved and they're awakened to the beauty of the gospel and their life is just so transformed in an instant. It's the kind of person, they're they're all of a sudden so zealous, they can't stop talking about it. Everybody they talk to, like, hey, 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 I I can't talk about the things I used to anymore. I I have no desire, no appetite to talk about those things that I once used to talk to you about. I only want to talk to you about one thing. Have you heard of this guy named Jesus? That's often what happens initially, but you see, this is the constant desire of the new heart. This ought to be fanned into flame. It ought to be cultivated. It ought to be protected and preserved in our lives because of this new identity of being sent out into the world. We are sent ones, which is fascinating because if you, if you know anything about the word church, the word church in Greek actually means called out ones. So just consider this for a moment. The words themselves remind us that we have been called out from amongst the world. We have been filled then with the Spirit of God. We are made new creations in Christ Jesus for the very purpose of now going out to the world and calling them out from the world. And the pattern keeps moving. You see that? 
This is, this is who we are. Identity is bound up with who I am in Christ and what he has called me to do. And, and, and that's why we're unashamedly a great commissioned church. We're called out from the world to be sent out into the world. And, and the language that's used in the scriptures is so powerful. Think about what, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, we are ambassadors for Christ. I mean, that's identity right there. Do you see that? We are ambassadors for Christ. And then look, look at the result of that identity in Paul's own mind. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, he goes on to say, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, the church becomes the mouthpiece of God in this world. God has given to us, his people, great responsibility in heralding his message. And if you can get this, you understand that identity produces activity. It's identity that produces activity. You see, witness is something you are before it's ever something you do. And this is so practical in our lives, this idea of identity and understanding who we are and God's calling upon our lives. You know, I talk to a a lot of people, and I know this, that one of the most common questions that believers and unbelievers alike wrestle with, but particularly Christians, I find this all the time too, is is what's my calling and in a Christian context, people are like, what's God called me to do? What is exactly, I, I need to know the specific calling on my life. What is God's will for my life? And by that, usually they're trying to figure out, you know, their, their career, their, their vocation, something like that. Like, what is it I'm supposed to do? And I'll tell you this, the scriptures actually tell us nothing about what your vocation or career path ought to be, but it says a lot about your identity and your calling as a Christian. Do you know that? And there's a sense in which I don't care what you do. I don't mean that to sound like, look, pray, figure out exactly how God's wired you. That's good. That's not bad. Don't hear me say that. But I could care. It doesn't matter in that specific sense what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a homemaker. It doesn't matter what you do. Listen, it matters what God has called you to do as a herald of the gospel wherever he's placed you. Your primary vocation is an ambassador. It's a pretty high office, by the way. You're an ambassador for the king. Above all things that you identify yourself by, maybe that should be the primary one. I am an ambassador. When somebody asks you, what do you do? Like, what's your job? I am an ambassador for King Jesus. The chief thing that matters, the chief thing that forges your identity, it's not your career, it's not your skills, it's not your abilities, it's your Savior. It's Jesus Christ. He is your identity, and he calls you to a great mission. He has given to you, the church, the great commission. God's will for your life is not that complicated in one sense. Here it is, okay? God's will for your life right here. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's your life mission. That that is our mission as a church. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says this, God's way of saving men is to send out his servants to tell them the gospel 
And the church has been charged to go into all the world for that very purpose. The church is designed for relationships, primarily upward with God, secondarily inward with one another, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, and then outward to the world. Everyone, if you're in Christ today, every one of you is sent. No exemptions. If you're a Christian, you are sent. Secondly, notice this, people are saved because we proclaim. That's what he says. I mean, if they're sent, they're sent to do something specific, and the word here is preach, but it can be translated just as easily as proclaim. That's the sense of the word. It's, it's, not, it's not primarily pointing towards the preaching office, you know, like what I'm doing here formally right now, although that's included. It's broader than that. It's the idea of faithful proclamation, telling people about the good news. And you see, the nature of proclaiming has to do with three things. Content, contact, and communication. Content, contact, and communication. We tell people about the good news. And that, by definition, means that there must also be some bad news that gets communicated. We need to understand the content of of the gospel itself. The gospel tells us, as Paul has laid out in this entire book, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are fundamentally guilty of disobeying God. We have rejected God. All of humanity is in the same place. We did not thank God or give honor to Him as God. We chose instead to honor ourselves. We have de-godded God, we have replaced Him with a multitude of idols, and as a result, we deserve to be justly punished for our sin and rebellion. The bad news is that you're not a good person. It's the bad news. The bad news is you're not a good person. You can't get yourself to God. That's the bad news. You can't get yourself to God. You are dead in your sin, and and you're also a slave to sin. It controls you. It rules your life, whether you know it or not. It dominates you. It keeps you fixated on anyone and anything but God. It keeps you self-centered. It keeps you self-righteous. The bad news is that you're held captive to your sin and that you will suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity, and that is just of God. It is what you and I deserve. But the good news is that God did something about it. The gospel is about what God has done for you. The good news is that God saw your sin, He saw what you deserved, and instead He came to give you mercy and grace. He came from heaven to earth. He took on flesh. He lived the perfect life. You could never live. He perfectly obeyed the law. He died a substitutionary death. He was nailed to a cross. The only one who didn't deserve to pay a penalty for sin because he never sinned. He stood there. He was nailed there for you and for your sins. He suffered the wrath of God for you. And the best part about the good news is that, yes, he paid for your sins, but when he went down to the grave, he rose again three days later, proving that he was greater than sin and death. The victory in Jesus is the good news, and the best news of all is that it's available for anybody who will believe, who will bow the knee to King Jesus, who will call upon the name of Jesus Christ, who will say, you are my Lord, I believe in you alone for salvation. 
This is the good news. And this is why he says right here, how beautiful, right? He quotes here from Isaiah chapter 52. This is such an awesome verse. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I mean, I, I, I love this verse because my feet are so ugly. I'm serious. It's bad. I got like jacked up toes, like furry hobbit's feet. But the answer, you know, this is so good. The answer, listen, you got ugly feet too. I know you do. Not many of you have pretty feet, okay? But the reality is you, you want to have beautiful feet in God's eyes? Forget about a pedicure. Go and preach the gospel. And you want to know why that's the case? It's because, listen, those are the feet that carries the mouth that declares the good news of salvation. And in the original context that this was written in Isaiah, it was written to a people who were in captivity. They were exiled because of their sin, and they were being told that there was a day coming when somebody would come and herald the good news. V-Day has arrived. You have been liberated from your sin. You have been set free. And on that day, I mean, just picture it. Imagine you're, you're a Jew in Auschwitz, and all of a sudden, somebody runs in and opens the cell door and says, the war is over. We've won. You're free. Like, what do you do? You fall down. You grab their feet. You weep. And you kiss the feet. I don't care how dirty they are. They're beautiful feet. And you see, this is the privilege that the church has. Through the preaching of the gospel, you and I are called to have these beautiful feet. Its content is critical to get you can't just preach any gospel. You must preach the biblical gospel. But you see, it's also about contact and communication. Contact with people. <laughs> you actually have to engage with people, and you actually have to communicate the truth to people. Paul reasoned, the Scriptures say, he taught, he persuaded, he heralded and proclaimed. All of these are terms for getting the gospel out. Again, I'm going to quote J.I. Packer. He's got this fantastic little book that I would recommend to you all. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it's kind of where I stole the title from. I just changed it for this sermon. But it's fantastic. And, and, and he says this in this book. He says that there is only one method of evangelism, namely the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. And his point is this, he goes on to talk about, you know, methods, they come and go. There's a lot of different ways in which you can communicate the gospel. Methods come and go. The message remains the same. You say, well, what's the best method? I, I got some opinions on this. And again, like I said, there's all kinds of methods and approaches. But I'll tell you this, what I think we see consistently throughout the scriptures is that relationships are perhaps the most effective and natural way of evangelism. It's hard to argue with that when you look at the Scriptures. The best and most effective way of communicating the gospel is by engaging those you are already in close contact with, of befriending people. Packer goes on, he says this, he's kind of talking about certain methods. Listen to what he says, this is relevant today. He says, with some people, you may establish such relationships within five minutes. Some of you are really good at this. You're really good at connecting, you can establish a relationship very quickly, whereas others it may take months. 
But the principle remains the same. The right to talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ is to be earned, and you earn it by convincing him or her that you are their friend and really care about them, and therefore, the indiscriminate buttonholing, the intrusive barging into the privacy of other people's souls, the thick-skinned insistence on expounding the things of God to reluctant strangers who are longing to get away... These modes of behaviors in which strong and loquacious, that's a really fancy word. I had to look this up. I'm like, I don't know what that is. It's like Gabby, you talker. Which strong and loquacious personalities have sometimes indulged in the name of personal evangelism should be written off as a travesty of personal evangelism. Impersonal evangelism would be a better name. Do you get what he's saying? There's a lot of methods out there that don't involve any genuine contact with people. Any actually getting to know them. And again, I'm not trying to dismiss all of those methods. I'm just trying to say there's something about getting close with somebody, about showing them that you actually care about them, that they're not just a number, you know, they're not just an object, they're an actual human being who have a life and experiences, and so they need to be treated as such. They need to know, you know, I, I heard this all the time when I went through seminary, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Isn't that true? And we just, we need to be a people who are so good at caring about other people, who engage with other people's lives, who genuinely and authentically love people. And that's not a guarantee that they're going to want to hear the gospel from you, but I can tell you this, somebody is so much more willing to hear what you love when they know that you love them. But just note this, it is only through preaching the gospel that people can hear and believe and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So let me just make this clear. Some of you guys have heard, you hear the phrase, um, this kind of floats around in evangelical circles, preach the gospel and if words, or sorry, and if necessary, use words. You hear that? Pre- you know what I'm saying? Like preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Everybody take your thumb like that, okay? Let's go ahead. Come on, participation right here. Put your thumb like that. Okay, now do this. This is terrible, 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 terrible way to think. That's not evangelism. Now listen, don't, 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 don't mistake me here. Yes, you must live the gospel in front of people. And if you don't, listen, if you don't, believe me, they're not going to want to hear the gospel from you. More people have been scared away from Christianity because of people who are blatant, willful, belligerent hypocrites. And that is a travesty and a shame. But I'll tell you this, you must live the gospel and you must, must preach the gospel. You have to preach the gospel. I mean, you, it's in your Bible. You, people cannot be saved by simply watching your life. You realize that? People cannot be saved unless they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will not hear They will not believe. They will not call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And the answer, church, this is so good, the answer for how will the gospel work? Think about it. It's a question. How will the gospel work? You know what the answer is? You and me. That's the answer. Now, let me state quickly here that any view of God's sovereignty that rejects human responsibility is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Anybody who just says, well, God will do it, I just sit back, put my feet up, God's sovereign, God will do it. Anybody who says that is not reading their Bibles. 
And the truth is this, listen, that God ordains the ends. Church, this is really important to grasp today. God ordains the ends, which is the salvation of sinners, but God also ordains the means, which is the preaching of the gospel to the people of God. Amen? He's sovereign over both. And he uses the one to accomplish the other. This is why we are called to go and proclaim. And this is why, by the way, preaching is at the center of our Sunday worship services. Do you realize that? And this is why the gospel is always present in every sermon. Do you you realize that? The reason why we never get away from the gospel, first of all, as Christians, is because there's nothing more beautiful than the gospel to a Christian, is there? I mean, if, if you're a Christian and you don't like hearing the gospel, you're not a Christian. But also, listen, we believe, we believe that sitting in this room right here, right now, there are people who don't know Jesus Christ, and the only way the Spirit of God is going to awaken their heart and transform their soul is through the faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we so believe in the sovereignty of God, we so believe it, that we believe we must preach the gospel. And we believe that God, listen, in a moment can grip your heart. In a moment, he can take you from being a sinner and transform you into being a saint. He can remove you, listen, from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son. In an instant, he can do that. But you must hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and call upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. We are sent, we proclaim. And secondly, and this will be much quicker, I promise. I know you're looking at this going like, he's got another point, doesn't he? The gospel calls the world to respond. The gospel calls the world to respond. And and so, listen, if you're an unbeliever here today, this is the human responsibility side for you. You're not called to proclaim yet, you're called to respond. And while we need preachers, we also need obedient hearers. And that is what Israel was not. And so what he does here is he addresses again these questions. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's talking about Israel. Look at, look at. They haven't obeyed. You get that? This, you hear the word obeyed there? They have a responsibility to, to believe, to embrace the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? I mean, in Isaiah's own day, he's like, I'm preaching the gospel, and you want to know what Isaiah saw? The vast majority of the Jews wouldn't believe. And Paul just says, look, this is, this, is, this is what Isaiah was talking about. It happened in his day, it's happening in your day. And this is verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So then the natural question is, okay, Well, maybe they haven't heard. Maybe they haven't heard the word of Christ. They haven't heard the word about Christ. They haven't heard the word from Christ, you know, through his people. Maybe that's the problem. What Paul is going to do here, he's going to address the Old Testament scriptures and prove that that is not the case. In fact, they asked three questions that he's going to quickly answer with some Old Testament quotes. And here's what we learn. We're going to learn three things here. First, many will reject, okay? Many will reject. In calling the world to respond, many, many will reject. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. That's what he says. Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Does that verse sound familiar? That's Psalm 19, verse 4. 
And in that context, Psalm 19 verse 4 is actually talking about creation. David is writing about how creation is is screaming forth the reality of God. It's kind of like what Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 about all creation declaring that there is a God and that he is powerful. You you can see God as you look at creation. And Paul doesn't quote the words verbatim. He kind of grabs a hold of the, the text and he doesn't give this exact quote like he usually does. He kind of paraphrases it and he's applying these truths in a New Testament context. And, and what he's actually saying is this, that through the apostles, through the ministry of the apostles and the preached word through the apostles, listen, the gospel has gone out to the whole world. In other words, all the Jews have already heard about Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. This is why, by the way, there is a pattern in the gospel. It goes to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. This is why Paul, every town he went to, where did he go first, church? The synagogue. Everywhere he went, he went to the Jew first. He wanted them to hear from their own scriptures that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that they all point to. He's here. He's here for you. You can embrace him. And the ministry of the apostles is theoretically and theologically, it has gone out to the furthest corners of the world in that day and age. That's what he's saying. They heard. They understood. The problem was not that they they hadn't heard it. The problem was always that they would not believe it. Many will reject the gospel. Many will reject the gospel. And by the way, let me just again, because that's true, we must believe in the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon said this. He said, "I, I preach as if it all depends upon me, and I sleep as if it all depends on God. Secondly, some will receive. It's often not who you think it is. But some will receive. Look what he says in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And and here, understanding is synonymous with believing. It's the equivalent of believing. And then he quotes two scriptures. He says, first, Moses says... I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and a foolish nation I will make, with a foolish nation I will make you angry. In other words, Moses taught the people that this was going to happen. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 21. And if you're familiar with that section of Scripture, that's, that's the song of Moses where he is putting in song form essentially the history of Israel their stubborn rebellion against the Lord, but God's constant gracious faithfulness to them, even in the midst of their stubborn idolatry. And in its context, Israel is said to make God jealous by worshiping idols. And so God says, I'm going to make you jealous by saving Gentiles. And that's what the church is looking around and seeing. Look at all these Gentiles. Look at some are receiving, and there's not many Jews. There are some, but there's not many. From their own scriptures, catch this, Israel should have recognized God was at work in the gospel. They should have seen the multitude of Gentiles receiving Christ and turned to receive him as well. They should have seen what Moses wrote and said, oh, this is the time that Moses prophesied about. And some will, by the way. More Jews will come. We'll get to that in chapter 11. But he goes further in verse 20. Look at what he says. Then Isaiah, I love this, he adds in, is so bold to say, 
I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, we already saw this with the quotes from Isaiah chapter 2. It's speaking of the Gentile inclusion. The prophecies of Isaiah 65 verse 1 were clear and accessible to the people of God. They said that the Jews would reject Jesus and the Gentiles would be brought in. And while many reject, some receive. And lastly, here's what we see here. All are responsible. All are responsible. Look here at the gracious pursuit of God in verse 21. This is so profound. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is amazing. You see, it's, it's, not, it's not for lack of opportunity or understanding. It's not for lack of, of God's grace and kindness to his people. The reason that they are not saved, Paul says, is that they choose to trust in their own righteousness instead of the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes only by faith. God had fulfilled the requirements of the law. He had been perfectly righteous, and they were responsible simply to believe and to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And this last verse, it's so staggering because it reminds us that God has patiently waited. He's been standing all day long with his hands outstretched, pleading, inviting, and waiting for a stubborn, obstinate, prideful people to simply bow the knee to him as king. And I couldn't help but think as I, as I read this and the imagery of this, I, I couldn't help but think of Luke 15, you know, the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story, right? That the two sons, the one son comes and says, God, you know, father, give me my inheritance. Basically, I wish you were dead. Takes the money, goes off in licentious living, sexual immorality, partying it up. He blows through all of the inheritance. One day he finds himself eating slop out of a pig's trough. Pulls himself back up and he says, you know, even my father's servants eat better than this. He crawls back home with his head down and he walks home and and the scriptures paint this picture of the father who is standing every day at the door. He is waiting there to watch his son come home and he doesn't look at his son and and say, you know, son, how dare you? Look what you've done. Yeah, I don't don't think you can't even come back here as a son. He runs to the son. He showers his love upon him. He robes him with his massive robe. He puts a signet ring on his finger. He gets him new shoes. And then he hosts this massive feast. Go get, the, go get the fattened lamb. Let's kill the lamb. Let's have a feast for my son who is lost, is now found. And then the other brother who stayed back with the father, who represents the Pharisees and the stubborn Jewish people in this story. He hears about this feast that's going on for his brother, and he is furious. He's so mad, and he refuses to go into the feast. And it's, it's fascinating. It says this in Luke 15, it says, And his father came out 
and entreated him. He treats this stubborn, son. you know what he does? He holds his arms out wide to him. And the son says, look at what I've done. How come you haven't done this for me? I've been the good son. I've done, I've done, I've done. Self-righteousness, self-righteousness, self-righteousness. And the father looks at the son. He entreats him and he says, son. He says, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. You know what he's saying? I've always been here for you. Every blessing that I'm pouring out on this son It's ready and available for you too. But you cannot receive it, you cannot grab hold of it, unless you lay down your pride and your self-righteousness and you come humbly to me, the one who provides richly in all things through Christ Jesus. And the overwhelming message of this passage is that the Jews' exclusion from God's people is their own fault. And the Bible asserts equally both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, calls us to believe that God is in control, but makes us responsible to trust Him in order to obtain righteousness. And listen, and He finds us all without excuse if we do not grab hold of the gospel of grace. As Paul has repeatedly stressed in this letter, we all know that we should not reject God. We know that deep down within, and we know we have apart from Christ, and we cannot therefore blame God if we do not believe. And nor can we blame Him if other people don't believe. Each one of us has an active role to play in turning to God for salvation. And so my appeal to some of you today, some of you are sitting here today and you're hearing this and you know you have been stubbornly resisting God. You're the older brother, your arms are crossed, or maybe you're the son who's been just living licentiously and you're wondering, am I worthy? Will I be accepted? Can I crawl back to God? And the answer is this, you have a God who's standing here right now, right here, with arms open wide. Just embrace Jesus. Confess with your mouth Believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But church, if anyone is going to be saved, someone must tell everyone about the one who alone can rescue. That, that church is our responsibility. We take care of the proclamation God takes care of the salvation. Amen? So let us be faithful to do what God has called us to do. And let us believe with full confidence and great expectation that God will do what only He can do.